Welcome everybody to the Sisters of Resistance podcast for the week of February 25th, 2018. The speakers on this podcast sometimes use bad language and so listener discretion is advised. Find us on Stitcher at Sisters of Resistance, all one word, and then find us on Podbean at Sisters of Resistance, all one word at podbean.com. And then find us on Sisters of Resistance on Facebook and email us at sistersofresistance3 at gmail.com. And finally, find us on Apple iTunes and find us on SoundCloud at Sisters of Resistance, and you guessed it, all one word. I'm joined here by my sisters this morning, Frenny McIntyre and Meg McIntyre-Sundin, and we want to get right into it. We don't want to waste any time. How are you ladies this morning? Franny? Uh, good, but just very distressed about the shooting in Parkland. Indeed, as well. And Meg, how about yourself? Exactly the same here, raring to go. Excellent, excellent. So, Franny, you were going to start us off this morning, so why don't you start? Well, I think it's important uh, for me. Uh, what's different? Why has the Parkland shooting uh, changed, the, changed the tenor of this debate? I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, one is uh, that these, these children um, are articulate and they are polished and they are bright and they are old enough to speak for themselves. So unlike the terribly unfortunate children at the Sandy Hook massacre back in 2012. Um, it's an established community. All these people are together mm -hmm. and, and, so, and suffering this atrocity together, as opposed to the people that had to, that came together and were just random victims and the Pulse shooting or in the Las Vegas concert shooting. Um, and, uh, and, and, and because of the location that these are, this was an area that was uh, very progressive uh, this is Broward County, who voted for Hillary Clinton in the last election. And, of course, the presence of social media. These kids have sprung forward, and I've had to, like, go to the TV to see who is speaking. And I see it's a 17- a or 18-year-old kid. Um, what they have brought to the fore is so dramatic and so true um, and has just brought us all to our knees because of the truth of what they're saying. I was, I was moved by uh, several pieces, uh, several written pieces that we put on the Facebook page, Reg, but the thing that really yeah. registered with me the most was the 10 deadliest mass shootings as compiled by CNN mm -hmm. that I've posted on our page. And just kind of obvious, kind of simplistic, maybe, ob maybe observations, but again, there's the truth that's staring us in the face and we can't see it because of the NRA, because there are certain... Uh, uh, representatives and senators who think that their seats are more important than lives continually being lost. And so here are the observations that I make. The 10 worst shootings in the past 10 years are um, the Pulse shooting, the Las Vegas shooting, Sandy Hook, the First Baptist Church in Texas, San Bernardino, California, um, and also Virginia Tech. Of course, the 10th one is the most recent, and that's Parkland. What are some of the things that you can see from looking at that? Uh, first is uh, the dates of these. These uh, first uh, started with Virginia Tech in 2007, this series that I'm talking about here, um, the, the worst ones. And this was after the assault ban expired. Mm -hmm. uh, so far as I can see, there is also listed on the CNN page all of the mass shootings uh, since 1949 and I looked at every one of them and I could find only one that was during the time of the assault weapons ban that was 1999 Atlanta Georgia yep. and it was a man who unfortunately bludgeoned his family before he shot them and then he took his handgun to his place of work I think he was able to take out about ten, nine people mm. but it took maybe a fairly significant amount of time different quality type of event still guns um, but that was dramatic to me, uh, that there was no mass shooting, but for that one, during the time of the assault weapons ban. Um, the fact that there are no women uh, mm. who are the shooters, mm. you know, which seems so obvious, but for one, save one, of course, there is the wife yep. of the San Bernardino shooter, and she was an active shooter. So you can't say that it's not going to happen, there's going to be a woman shooter, but at least to date, it seems to really be tied in with, oh, I hate to say testosterone, but let's, you know, that some, there seems to be some association here yeah. um, and only banned um, uh, handguns in the home. But nonetheless, that's an important date in here. Now, 
we've seen um, our president uh, reference a couple of, uh, of, of, of changes that he wants to propound, and so does the governor of Florida, and of course the NRA is in an uproar, that they might raise the legal age for buying an assault weapon to 2000, 2000 I'm sorry, to 21. Mm -hmm. um, this frosts me. Uh, it's too little. It's too late. Right. Uh, it's obvious. It should apply to all firearm sales, not just assault weapons. We must bring ban, bring back the ban on assault weapons. I believe that firmly. And looking at the age issue is meaningless. Of the 10 most deadly shootings as compiled by CNN, only two involve people under the age of 21. That was, mm -hmm. uh, and that was, um, it's Parkland, of course. And, um, I'm, I, well, I'm not, it, Sandy it isn't Hook? Sandy. Not, yes, yeah, correct. Sandy Hook, he was 20. He was okay. 20 in Sandy Hook. He had 27 victims, but he was 20. Only two are below the age of 21. So that's not going to solve the problem. Yeah. But the thing that drives me bananas is the notion that it's a school issue and uh -huh. that they have tried to change, the White House has tried to change the rhetoric to it's a yeah. school safety issue. It's yeah. a school safety issue. We're talking about school safety. Of these 10 shootings, only two are in schools, mm -hmm. Sandy Hook and Parkland. Those are the only two that are in schools. It's not about school safety. It's about the guns, stupid. And the problem with having guns in the schools is, as in any sensitive environment, maybe you can train the teachers, maybe. You know, I know y'all talk about that, Reggie, maybe. But what if, it's, if, a, if a teacher is disarmed? What if a teacher doesn't appropriately store the weapon? Mm -hmm. What if somebody grabs the, uh, the firearm out of the, what, shoulder holster of the nursery school teacher? That's the problem. I worked in the courtrooms of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts for years and years and years, and guns were not permitted even by um, even by court officers, except in, in remarkable situations, because of the fear mm -hmm. that in that volatile environment, someone would disarm the person, and that's when a tragedy would result. It's not about the schools. It's about the guns. Stupid. We can't possibly find um, a, a way to protect all of us from the guns that are going to be sold so liberally uh, and without regard to age. Um, and because there'll always be human failure, yeah. I believe there must be a ban. But, you know, no matter the, the wonderful uh, uh, and involved regulations that have been put into place to try to control the sale of weapons, um, the system still fails. And I think Margaret knows something about that. Yeah. Meg, would you like to tell us what you know? Well, yes, I would like to follow on Franny's comments um, you know, attempts to confuse this issue, saying it involves schools or somehow it's society's problem. Uh, I want to talk specifically about the warning signals that society received for, uh, concerning this shooter, uh, including law enforcement, specifically the FBI. Okay. Uh, I am trying to avoid using the shooter's name. I think it's very appropriate not to make these, these people heroes. Okay, the shooter had apparent medical, mental issues, apparent to everyone. He showed signs of being a psychopath. He abused animals, had terrible anger management problems. He pulled a gun on his own mother. He himself had called the police asking for help dealing with emotional issues following his mother's death in November. Wow. So there were numerous warnings to the school, to the police, and to the social agencies. And I want to say that all these agencies took actions that could be considered appropriate. They visited the home. They counseled the guy. Social agencies analyzed him. And they all decided that uh, he did not present an imminent threat. He wasn't going to go off that much. Specifically with the FBI, I am disappointed. Uh, the FBI has been really getting kicked in the ass by 45 over the past, past few months in order to deflect and, and try to um, damage the Russian investigation. That was all unfair. Unfortunately, this was a really bad mistake. But even with that, the response was arguably reasonable, okay? 
the impact specialist, and I'm going to talk a little about the specific language of the tip, mm -hmm. analyzed the information and decided that it wasn't an imminent threat, I think, because the guy said he'd like to shoot people. He didn't say, I'm going to go shoot people. Mm. Now, I think that's a very unprofessional linguistic analysis, and I don't think that that intake specialized was specialist was trained mm. to be making hair-splitting decisions like that. But from the follow-up questions that the intake specialist asked the caller, that appears to be part of the rationale. Mm. The caller was a shirt-tail relative. You remember that the shooter was adopted. And she called the FBI to say that the shooter seemed to be presenting a threat through his actions and his statements. Okay, he was saying things, he was publishing them on social media. Uh, she gave specific information about his Instagram and other accounts. Again, I'm not up on social media, but gave very specific references to finding these, social, these aids. It's noted that even one of the shooter's account was his name followed by Makarov, M-A-K-R-O. I googled that to find out that that is a Russian semi-automatic pistol used by their military and police. Uh, it's kind of an iconic weapon. I don't think that he had one of those because it would only shoot 8 to 12 at a time, and he certainly had more firepower than that. But anyway, he was sort of idealizing these guns. Um, that Meg and Meg, Meg, that was Makarov, correct? Makarov. Okay. Okay, right. and I'm sorry if I mispronounced it, but I said that is the Russian military and police weapon, semi-automatic okay. for decades. Got it. Okay. The the shooter had lost his mother, as reported by this caller, and was using money he was appropriating from her estate to buy eight guns. Now you you and I hear that and we're like. Eight guns. Okay, she reported that the guy had anger management issues. He was forever poking holes in plaster and beating walls and had the mentality of a 12 to 14 year old. Mm. She explained how he liked to hurt animals and would publish images of the image the of the frogs and birds he was dissecting. He said specifically, I want to kill people. He dressed, she described it as a ninja or a terrorist, but basically he was certainly into play acting. And she also said that she had called either the local police or the sheriff, that's not clear, and had also advised them. Also found out that the shooter has a younger brother named Zachary. Poor mm. guy, can you imagine the life he's going to have? Mm. Okay, the intake specialist, the person answering the phone at the FBI, also had access to an earlier tip that had come into a field office, specifically stating the shooter's name and postings on social media saying that he had a desire to kill people, he had erratic behavior, and that he wanted to be a professional school shooter. Right. Now, to any of us, you'd say, oh my God, why is that not enough? I'll tell you what I think might have happened. Uh, and this was clearly a mistake, and several people's careers will be ended by this, mm -hmm. okay? The call comes in Friday afternoon at 2.30. Uh, you've, you've gotten the essence of it. The intake specialist asked, you know, is, did he say he's going to do it, or did he just say he'd like to do it? Mm. Okay, I remember in a previous podcast, Oh, a long time ago. I talked about the attorney general guidelines. Mm -hmm. And this was a very specific thing that was created after the, um, the investigative world was divided into national security and criminal investigation. Yeah. It sets out very strict standards that the FBI needs to meet before they can open a case. So I'm guessing mm -hmm. that this impact specialist, who was really not trained law enforcement, Mm -hmm. did not see enough here. I'll also say that West Virginia, where the call went in, like the state of Florida, is a gun culture. Yeah. People have lots of guns. They don't see any problem with it. And finally, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, it was a Friday afternoon. 
-hmm. And it was a lot more work to write up the tip and send it to a field office than it would have been to say, ah, I don't really think this this is anything. I, I hope that was not the case, but I'm thinking that someone was going to go home at 3 or 3.30 and this was just too much to do. That was a big, big, big mistake by the FBI. Okay, Margaret. Margaret, would that person have been a would that person have been a professional person or an agent? No. What's the level of no. that person? This is the public access line. In the old days, every field office had what was called a complaint clerk, yeah. and also had an FBI agent who was on duty for the day. The duty agent, the complaint clerk, answered answered phone calls and also took walk-in people, made a report, excuse me, took down the information, checked indices. If it was the least bit out of the ordinary, would bring in the duty agent who would then refer it to the appropriate uh, squad for action. In order to save money, save personnel, they decided to take those spots out of the field offices and locate them at the Criminal Justice Information Services headquarters in Clarksburg, West Virginia. Already set up was a call center for NICS, because if you go into a gun shop and buy a gun, that federally licensed firearm seller has to call into NICS and say, I've got Mr. X, here's his date of birth, uh, can he buy a gun? Okay, so they just merely expanded an existing call center So you have a bunch of clerks who are basically entry-level people who were trained how to use the phone, how to be polite on the phone. They were very, this person was very polite on the phone. Okay, there are supervisors around. The ultimate supervisors would be five or six agents, and I don't know if there would be intermediary supervisors. But that supervisor had the ability to look out and see if someone was talking on the phone and could plug in and listen to what's going on. Also, the phone calls are completely taped and are supposed to be reviewed a second time. The reason I was able to look at this, at the FBI language services in Pocatello, Idaho, they trans and typed up the transcript for it. So basically, this intake specialist, who was just a regular person, consulted with his or her supervisor and decided to deep six this. Mm. In the old days, the Bureau had a file called the Zero File, where you put nuts or things for no further action. Uh, we got, they got rid of that. I'm, I'm not sure where this went, but it's especially horrifying to me knowing that all the dots were connected, and this intake specialist knew that previously a call on a person with the exact same name had come into the FBI before. I don't understand how you could possibly say this shouldn't be referred, and that's why I'm sort of scratching to think of re- reasons why. Mm-hmm. It's just, it made me sick when I heard about it. It made me more sick when I read the transcript and saw that all the information is there. Uh, and I just want to say that the shooter's actions were all lawful under state and federal law and the Constitution, including the First Amendment, which lets you say whatever crazy shit you want, <laughs> and the Second Amendment, which supposedly protects your right to guns. And Franny might talk about that later or maybe next week. Okay, the shooter paid for the guns. He locked them up. And again, it was quite acceptable in a gun culture. The family he was living with said, yeah, he had guns, but, you know, they were his. Okay, next to say, on the day of shooting, the law enforcement actions were not unreasonable. Uh Depending on the training, sometimes people are urged to take a place of cover and await further instruction. I think that might have been what was happening here, in addition to the fact that the people who were actively going to respond were watching a time-delayed video and didn't know it. So by the time the video was done, everything was finished. But it's not unreasonable to stay in a place of cover and wait for instructions. Okay, so what does that leave us with? We can wring our hands about society and about warnings. But there's human error always. Mm -hmm. This is an example of a perfect storm. Society had all the warning. The shooter had every kind of services available to him. The police were warned. FBI was warned. And yet it still happened. Mm. 
what is something we can control? And that would be, as Fernie mentioned, preventing the purchase of guns by youth yeah. at a minimum. Secondly, outlawing assault weapons, anything that makes an assault weapon. And I personally would include semi-assault weapons. There is no sporting purpose. There is no defense purpose for an assault or a semi-assault weapon. I saw on TV that a congressman, and I don't remember his name, and I had never seen him before, but basically he explained that the reason for wanting to have assault and semi-assault weapons was, quote, everyone likes to go to the range and pop off a few. <laughs> now, you know, in that case, why, don't, why doesn't the range just keep the weapons there and let people shoot it and have their fun and mm -hmm. leave the weapons at the range? So if that's really what it's for. The whole thing is horrifying, disgusting, and so preventable if we would just realize that we need reasonable gun control. And uh, I know, uh, Reggie, you've got some interesting stuff to talk about training. It is not easy to be trained in firearms. And um, I, I think the listeners would love to hear about that. Well, what occurred to me is um, the, the sheriff that was sitting, that was behind the car having uh, cover or concealment. And it, 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 well, first of all, the guy was clearly overpowered. So I don't know, the, like you said, he was waiting for further instruction, waiting for backup. But it, it, it started to occur to me that, you know, um, I was in law enforcement for 25 years in federal law enforcement, and we would often run into um, state and local cops, uh, police officers, and some of them would remark that they would just go to the range once a year. And, and that really bothered me because as to, to operate a firearm, you have to have its muscle memory and you have, to have, you have to do it again and again and again. You have to repeat that training over and over and over. And then it gets into your head and it gets into your, into your, own, physical, into your own physicality. And so I just thought, you know, since I had gone through firearms training, um, that you guys would just be a little bit interested in it. Um, uh, so I was trained at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, which is different, of course, from the FBI Academy in Quantico. And um, we, I was trained initially, originally back in 1987, um, when I, the service revolver, the six-shot, was the, was the uh, weapon of choice for law enforcement. And it, it amazes me that over the course of time that it had changed from the revolver into the semi-automatic handgun. And, um, and that was because the reason for the change was because the bad guys were using the semi-autos and they figured, well, we got to get our people up to speed. We can't be using a six shot with a guy that has magazines that has 13 rounds each, you know, and he has a couple that of makes guns, sense. You know, so... So they had the transition. That was probably in 1992 when they transitioned over. But um, so, so that was the first thing I thought of. And then the second thing I thought of is that the training itself, you know, a lot of these, um, <clears throat> these shoot situations, shooting situations uh, between the Bureau and state and local cops, there's always folks, the training people that will analyze th those shootings to see what was a justified shoot, what was a bad shoot, and how it all went down. And so when I was trained back in 87 with the, with the six shot, with the revolver, and remember the cylinder, that's a, in other words, the revolver has six rounds in it in the cylinder, and that cylinder rotates when you pull the trigger. Um, and so back in the day when we had the revolver, the shooting, they had more of a emphasis on shooting at the 15-yard line um, uh, uh, if anyone's ever been on a firing range before. So uh, that was the, that was sort of the, that was what they would put the, the focus on as opposed to as the training and as I continued on in my career in law enforcement, they then started to look at most firing, most firefights happen within the three to five, three to five, maybe seven yards of the good guy and the bad guy. So wow. then they put, they made the training more up, you know, you had to have more, there was much more of a focus of, of up close and personal with the target and how, how to, how to, how to, how to train folks in that way. So, um, and then, um, 
you know, the transition over from the, uh, from the revolver to the Sig Sauer, which is what the Navy Naval Investigative Service, NCIS, that's what they carried. And then when I went to work for EPA, they switched over to the Glock. And one of my boss, one of my bosses at the time, he was the one that decided that the Glock would be the best weapon because it was the simplest to operate. <laughs> and um, but again, it was a semi semi-automatic weapon. And um, and so it was um, it was just a. Uh, and so I, the reason why I bring it up again is because I think the training between uh, state, county and federal uh, p uh, police entities. It can vary uh, from from place to place to place. And whenever we were on the range, of course, you know, we all would always receive a safety lecture, and safety was paramount. We didn't want anybody shooting their their feet off or shooting another, shooting each other, actually accidentally. So luckily, uh, that didn't happen for me. Um, but um, it just uh, oh, and the and the other thing that had changed over time as well is. The holsters, Franny, you had mentioned about what they call in firearms training weapons retention. So in other words, the 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 holster from 1987, it was a snap and keep holster. So it was basically a snap. I think Meg, you had those because Meg was an FBI agent. That's one yeah. of the deep back secrets about Margaret. She was also an FBI agent. <laughs> <laughs> so you had to snap the keeper, pull the weapon, and then and then and then and then shoot. Uh, the current, the current, the holster I ended up with back in 2013, it was a, it was a hard plastic holster, and you had to, it had a couple of other safeties on it that you had to be able to maneuver so that you could pull the weapon out. So in other words, it was a whole other type of holstering so that a bad guy could not, you know, lurch, you know, come over to you and pull the weapon away, pull it out of your holster. It was really impossible to do. So. That was another thing that I have thought of. And then um, the other thing was, is as an EPA agent, I was trained on the shotgun, which Meg, I believe you, you learned, you yes. shot the shotgun as well. And um, again, that was, we had familiarization and then we had to qualify twice a year on the shotgun. And then to qualify a perfect score on the, um, on the semi-automatic weapon, it's a perfect score is 300, and that means that there are 60 rounds that you are given on the range, and if you can get all 60 rounds in the five ring, then you get a perfect score of 300, which that's great on the range. But the, 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 other, the important thing that they then brought in was um, to teach us shoot and no-shoot situations and firing in, 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 in the dark and then firing when you got all the, all the lights and sirens going. I mean, they would put together various scenarios so that you could stay up to speed on, on the training and what it's like to be in a tense situation, such as Parkland. Like that guy, you know, that sheriff, he was behind. He, 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 sought, he decided to seek cover and concealment rather than go in and, and, and go after the guy, you know, so. Um, and then um, hearkening back to when I was with NCIS, I was, I was taught, of course, we had the revolver, we had the Sig Sauer, and then we also, I was taught the Uzi, which is a Israeli, uh, I had to look this up, an open, open bolt machine gun. And the, what they liked about the Uzi, what NCIS liked about the Uzi is that it was, uh, it was in five pieces. You could, so in other words, you took it apart and there was five easy pieces, you could put it back together again, and um, it was an easy weapon to, to shoot. It had very little recoil, and we used those on protection details. I was often put on protection details like they would do um, for <laughs> ministers of defense and that kind of a thing. So, and they also, they would jokingly say that the Uzi, that the Israeli grandmothers liked to use the Uzi because it, it just helped them stay, feel safe, you know, in, in, in Israel. Um, so. Um, so, and hey, Reggie, oh, Reggie can, yeah. I, can I can I ask a question in here, Reggie? Because yeah. I think you're just kind of. Can you just give me a distinction between the revolver, the traditional type of gun, and the semi-automatic, like the Sig? Yeah. And then and then to the automatic. What what's the distinction? I think I mean my sisters, you would never know it to see them on the street. Are both trained in this stuff, <laughs> and I'm at a huge disadvantage because I've never come any closer to a court, to a gun than in a courtroom. At which point I would stay way back from it. 
So what's the distinction, Rich? And maybe I want to jump into it. Well, I, I, I would say that the, the revolver, the Smith & Wesson. It's like West, the Wild West. Yes, yes. It's a, you, could, you can, go, you can you know, Google it online or whatever, but basically it's a, uh, it's a weapon with a, with a, you know, a, 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 um, a handle. And, but the, the difference is that the, the, the rounds, the bullets, I call them, we used to call them rounds, but the bullets go into this cylinder-like contraption. And I can't really explain it all, except that there are six rounds that right. you are limited to for each, for each gun. So it's about the loading, isn't it? And so it's about, well, it's, what do you mean it's about the loading? About the, it's easier to, you know, it doesn't take as much maneuvering well, to load the semi? Yeah, well, yeah, and not only that, in the semi, you're going to have a magazine, and each magazine will carry 13 rounds. I see. And so you have, you have a magazine in the weapon itself, and then you have on your, in your magazine pouch, on your, what you would have on your, on your hip would be two additional magazines of 13. So that's 26, and then the additional 13 that would be in the, mag, in, in the, in the weapon itself as opposed to six in the revolver, then you have to go back into your magazine pouch, excuse me, into your pouch and get an additional six rounds and put those in, the, in, in your gun. So basically, it's really old school from I see. that was back in the day. And, and Reggie, can I, can I jump in? Yeah. With the revolver, uh, it takes seconds. I mean, by I mean five, six might take you 10 seconds to reload. You have to open up the gun, yeah. uh, take even a speed load loader off off your belt, um, put it in. Remember to drop it. Don't put the speed loader away. Close yeah. the gun and start shooting again. With the with the semi-automatic, you just as Regina said, flip the magazine into the handle. The magazine can hold fourteen. We only put thirteen in it because you never want to stretch any mechanical thing to uh, its ultimate all the time. Federal law enforcement officers like Regina have been trained to take apart the weapon, clean it, put it back together with your eyes closed because of these, these are all circumstances that you might be operating under. When you have the automatic weapons, they are so easy to shoot. Um, the M16 or the military version or the, the AK-47, just so easy. You don't even really have to aim. When you're working with an old-fashioned gun, you have to really aim it. You have to be trained. So federal law enforcement officers have to qualify every six weeks. You have to have training and you have to go show every six weeks that you are fully competent right. on every weapon that you are that you are you are authorized to carry it's a really big deal so that's why i'm very upset with the thought that people can go and buy a weapon and to have someone just show them here's where you put the ammunition in yeah uh, even at close quarter fighting it can be very difficult to hit somebody unless you know what you're doing but right. when you have one of these automatic weapons it's like a, a hose that you'd water your lawn with you just spray it and that's what this kid was doing. Well, that, that's very interesting, Reggie. And I, I interrupted you with the Uzis, the, the, uh, yeah. you know, the, grandmother, the grandmother's toting the Uzis. Yeah. Well, um, <clears throat> no, I was just going to say, um, the, uh, I know that the migrant, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the, the, the Bureau went over to the speed loaders. There was, wasn't there a, a very bad bank robbery incident? At the yes, FBI? that was in 1985. Yeah. Yeah. In Miami. Yep. And um, it happened so that the agents were staking, stake, doing to do a stakeout at a bank. Yeah. They had the six shot on mm. their hips, and you'd have the six shot, and then you'd also have another six rounds yeah. on you. Right. Um, you wouldn't, if you were just on a regular day, you wouldn't go out with a full. And then in the trunks, they had the shotguns, which mm -hmm. is a very scary looking weapon, but again, requires a lot. That happened in 1985. They were up against bank robbers who were military trained and had assault weapons. Okay. And it was a very black day for the Bureau. Yeah. And, and luckily, we, the Bureau was saved by one man who was not what you'd appear to be your typical hero. 
Mm -hmm. uh, he had one arm shot, but he somehow got the trunk open and yeah. got out the uh, shotgun and teetered forward and used his, he racked it on the bumper of the car and, and finally ended it, a real hero. But basically, that was when the Bureau said, we have to go to automatics. And it took yeah. years to determine what would be the appropriate one and train everyone. But it was, as you said before, federal law enforcement officers were being completely outgunned. Um, that's it. So, and so, so then they went to the speed loader because, because um, as I recall, the, the, they, 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 they spent all the rounds in the revolver, then they had to go back into the pouch. And I can remember distinctly seeing all the, the rounds in the guy's hand and they couldn't put the rounds in the, in, into the, into the revolver. Yeah, two, two at a time. Yeah. Two at a time. So, you know, so that was, that was a bad, bad day for the Bureau. Um, I don't, I'm not going to go into, you know, uh, what, what, what's it like to be on the range at three yards, five yards, seven yards, but I do know that the focus has an, uh, turned into uh, shooting altercations very close up with the bad guys. So at three yards, five yards, and seven yards. And the way that they taught us was you don't even, at that close range, you don't even have close range to the bad guy. Don't even bring the sights up to your eye. Just just pull it right out in front of you, in front of your uh, mm. in front of your chest, and, and shoot. And wow. then as you get further back on the range, then you bring it up. You bring it up, and you get your sights in alignment. You know. So and then the uh, so Franny, you had asked me. So I googled it. So what's the difference? Okay, it says um, I got this off of Wikipedia, and it said um, the mechanism of semi-automatic firearms is usually what is known as a closed bolt firing system. In a closed bolt system, a round must first be chambered manually before the weapon can fire. When the trigger is pulled, only the hammer and the firing pin move, striking and moving the cartridge. So what I believe that means is, if I'm holding my, my Glock, I put the magazine in the, in, in, I, I put the insert the magazine, I give it a, a, pump, a, bump, a pump so that it gets up there, then I have to, what they say, rack it, so you pull the, 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 what, the bolt back or whatever that thing is back and then the, then the round goes into the chamber and then you can start to shoot. And it's a one, it's, it's, it's one trigger pull each time. It's not, a, it's, not like, it's not like that, you know, as opposed to the semi-automatic. Um, okay, an automatic weapon fires continually until the trigger is released. Okay, so that's the difference. So that's what I that just, is. that's very helpful, Regina. I just wish our audience could see the video of this because it's very instructive <laughs> to, to see Regina holding her, holding her, her, her it's uh, that muscle air gun out. Yeah. Right. Gun out. And, and, and that shooter shot off 150 rounds. Can you yeah. imagine? Yeah, I just, um, and Meg, to your point, I mean, I had, when I was living in West Virginia, in Fairmont, I saw many, a, many a guy roaming around Walmart you know, with a sidearm on. And I often said to myself, does this idiot even know how to operate that firearm? They, most of them just want to buy a gun so they can have it and walk around with it, you know? They don't know how the hell to shoot it. And, and also the federally licensed uh, uh, gun shop owners are very happy when there's all talk about gun control because people rush in and yes. buy the stuff right off the shelf. Right. And and once you get into guns, I saw someone show me that he had an elephant gun. Now, what in the name of God would anyone need? First of all, why shoot a lovely elephant? But mm. basically, yeah. in West Virginia, there aren't any <laughs> elephants. So, um, um, the other know, thing, I just want to go ahead. No, go ahead, Reggie. Sorry. I uh, I wanted to find out about the AR-15. What was that all about? And um, the AR stands for Armor, Arma Light, A-R-M-A-L-I-T-E. It is the company that, de that developed the weapon. It does not stand for assault rifle or automatic rifle. And it also said, I wanted to find out the note, what they call it. It's the modern sporting rifle. And what in the hell does that mean? It doesn't mean jack shit. All it is, it's a marketing ploy to sell the guns to civilians. So modern sporting rifle, you know? I mean, what, so anyway, I just wanted to, oh, 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 it's for shooting vomits, 
and big game. Yeah. So, as well as, you know, uh, if you want to go on the range and pop a few off. <laughs> what were you going to say, Franny? I just was going to observe that the, the most obvious thing that I neglected to point out about the 10 deadliest mass shootings were that you could detect all of them with semi-automatic weapons. All of them with semi-automatic weapons. Can you say that one um, more time? And to me, sure. Okay. That of all, the, of all the, the mass shootings that are recounted by CNN, yep. um, that uh, they all were accomplished with semi-automatic weapons. Okay. Okay. Yep. All right. They're all with big weaponry. They're not with old-fashioned weaponry. They're all with assault weapons, essentially. Oh, okay. okay. And then, Reggie, if I can just say one thing. You know, we've talked in the past about the, sort of the secret messages that the right, the alternative right uses. Yeah. Well, you know, this kid, the shooter, also had knives. But he didn't take knives to school with him. Mm. But I've noticed lately that 45, in talking about a particular gang, the MS-13, keeps talking about their machetes and how they cutting you to little pieces. Again, oh, yeah. a distraction technique to get us away from worrying about guns. Um, I'm looking at the uh, document I pulled off the web uh, for the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, and I would be remiss to not say that in addition to firearms training, they also do non-lethal training, uh, ammunition, how to, how to you know, disengage an, an individual from his weapon, and, uh, and a number of other techniques. So um, I have the whole list here. I could probably put it online on our, on our website. Um, but I just wanted to let folks know that in addition to the actual training, they also have non-lethal training tactics. So um, they're, not, they're, not, they're not all completely crazy. They do definitely try to disengage an, an, an individual from his weapon if they can, in fact, do that. Um, Franny, what, so can, I, I'm interested in hearing about Hellog. I, I, I want to know about that. What can you tell us about that decision? Well, I can tell you just a little bit, um, and, and, and that is because um, we hear so much reference right now, particularly to yeah. the, the fighting that's going to have to take place in the courts, um, and that uh, you hear uh, such uh, declarations of the constitutional rights of gun owners and such concerns about the Second Amendment. And it's, it all seems to be um, premised on a, on a tremendous misunderstanding of what the Supreme Court has said about the possession of firearms. And the case that is the most important uh, that, that did in fact clarify that the Second Amendment protects the individual citizen's right to have a firearm is called the Heller decision, District of Columbia versus Heller. The decision was written in 2008 by Justice Antonin Scalia. Now, one of the things that I love about understanding legal issues is it all comes down to the facts. And if you get the facts, it'll make sense to you what the ultimate decision is. Now, Heller was a special policeman that lived in the District of Columbia. That's material only because the District of Columbia isn't a state. A subsequent case made it clear that this provision does apply to each of the United States, not just the district. But the district had a regulation preventing anybody from having a handgun without a license. And in the home, the handgun had to be unloaded, had to have a trigger lock on it, and had to be secure. Essentially, that if you had a handgun in your home, it needed to be uh, rendered inoperable. Um, and Heller applied uh, for a license, was not granted a license. Uh, and I'm not confident, I'm not sure, and I should be clear about this, but I believe all he, what he wanted to do was to apply for a license, and he was denied, um, despite the fact that he was a special police officer. That's what it was. He was denied this license. And that's what came through the federal courts. And as I say, it ended up with Scalia in 58 pages of decision, looking at the history of the Second Amendment, what the intention was of the framers, and... Um, you might disagree with the final analysis. You might disagree with the policy implications of what Scalia said, but if you read it, it's really beautifully written and, and quite clear. What he says is the framers of the Constitution were afraid of a government that historically had prevented the local population from bearing arms. That historically in England, the Catholics had tried to disarm the Protestants and vice versa. 
and that the crown had tried to disarm the colonists in 1776. And when you think about it, if the Trump administration told all of us that none of us could own guns or if we had them, they had to be inoperable, we'd be pretty concerned. And so the Heller decision says that the government cannot prevent an individual citizen separate from the, separate from the army, separate from the Navy, separate from the military, that the private citizen cannot be prevented from having on his or her person in his home an operable firearm for the purposes of protection, of self-defense and protection. And it says other traditional uses of a firearm. I believe that's what the language of it was. So the uh, colonists were going to have none of it uh, that would prevent them from holding that right. And so the Second Amendment um, was, uh, was uh, captured into law and basically uh, guaranteed the right of the people to bear arms would not be infringed. What did Scalia say that it meant just what it said? That it was clear that any, any citizen would be permitted to have a gun in their home for self-defense purposes. That's all the decision really stands for. Okay. It does not grant the citizenry the right to have any type of firepower in any setting or under any circumstances or without any regulation whatsoever. There has been considerable subsequent litigation since 2008. And the opinion is quite clear. I'm not sure if I can read my handwriting, but I'm going to try to. Justice Scalia writes, nothing in our opinion should be taken to cast doubt on longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons, by the mentally ill, all mm. laws forbidding the carrying of firearms into sensitive places such as schools or government buildings, or laws imposing conditions on the commercial sale of firearms. So really, mm. since then, I haven't made an exhaustive study of it, but there's really been no litigation that has established any uh, restriction on the authority of the states to regulate firearms except to have an operable firearm in your home. That's why, Reg and Meg, in Massachusetts, where we come from, you cannot possess a firearm or a handgun without a license right. or a permit. And it's punishable to have it without that license or the permit. And it's very different from down here in Florida where the laws are so dramatically different where there's gun shops and gun shows and signed for concealed, signs up for concealed carry workshops. It's a completely mm -hmm. different culture. I was reading my Sunday morning paper, and there are two gun fairs open, and anybody under the age of 12 is admitted free. Um, and so uh, we, 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 we need to look with a jaundiced eye and anybody that tells us that we need to worry about the rights of the lawful rights of the gun owners uh, because those rights are very constrained. They're very limited by Justice Scalia. Um, so thanks. And, for, and uh, Franny, um, at the gun shows, the usual rule about Nick's checks does not apply. Oh, oh, Anyone could go in and buy what because they're not federally licensed necessarily for your licensed final. So I said it really is wow. uh, just incredible. Wow. Jeez. I didn't know it's, that. It's, it's all about the guns. It's yeah. not about school safety. It's not about mental illness. It's not about youth. It's about the friggin' guns. Mm -hmm. On that, do we, gals, do we have anything else that we want to share with our listeners? This was a good podcast. I think it was. I just want to say one thing. Yep. Watch out, because I'm really curious what's happening with this fellow, Alex Vanderswand. Oh, yeah. The young, the young lawyer from Scadnaps. Yeah. 33 years old, pleads guilty this week, has uh, a plea agreement filed, of course, has not agreed to cooperate or to testify, won't be sentenced until April. But I can't help wondering, what is going on with that particular fellow? His father-in-law is a billion Russian billionaire oligarch. Yeah. Watch <laughs> that one. Yeah. I can't help thinking there's some agreement that doesn't appear in the public records by reason of witness protection. Mm-hmm. 
and that he and his family maybe have some exposure. He's Dutch, lives in London, yeah, yeah. Um, and came into the United States to plead guilty. Probably the end of his career. Probably yeah. knows a lot. <laughs> and probably, who knows what's, uh, what people are thinking about at Scad Naps, but he's a low-level guy who goes in and pleads this week. So I say watch that because I think there's going to be something interesting coming out of that case. Awesome. Meg, do you have anything else, hon? No, I just, uh, I just wanted to uh, remind our listeners that I enjoy getting new suggested nicknames for 45. And remember, I'm looking for a short, easy-to-say nickname that would be very understandable. And if our current president were to hear the nickname, it would make him really mad. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So please, uh, please come keep up, keep those suggestions coming in. Back to you, Reg. And and we do have a front front runner for the apron, yeah. Reggie, don't we? At the moment, yeah. we do have a front well, runner. Well, yes, so. but we want to keep that competition out there. We're not going to give anything away. We're not going to keep it open forever. So people better just send in their suggestions. All righty, very good, girls. Um, thank you. As discussed today, Trump's vain and reckless and self-serving actions undermine the rule of law and our American way of life. Join us, the Sisters of Resistance, in calling bullshit on the Trump administration. (laughs) And if you see BS, then you call BS. (laughs) Thanks for being here, Franny and Meg, and my name is Reggie, and thanks to everyone for listening. See you next week, and take care, and have a good day. Bye-bye. Thanks for being with us. Bye-bye.